you turn your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 11 for context, but we'll focus on verses 8 through 11. Verse 6 reads, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, give us ears to hear. I pray that you would remove all obstacles so that we would hear only from your mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. Suffering is a significant aspect to the Christian life because a sin-sick world that we live in brings pains of sin. So we will suffer. And we are instructed in Scripture on how to walk through the suffering. And no matter what burdens the Lord has gifted you, you ought to carry them Well, you carry them to his glory, and you carry them, as we learned last week, with a humble heart, trusting in his ways. Yet when we speak of suffering, we can miss a significant, another significant aspect of suffering in the Christian life. When we speak of suffering, often we're we're obviously, first and foremost, thinking about just the pains and just, just trials we go through. And that's true. But we miss another significant aspect of the kind of suffering that we will endure as Christians. And before I explain this specific aspect, I want to read a few verses for you. And I want you to discern from the mouth of God if you can hear what he's talking about. So I'm going to read a few passages. Bear with me. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. It says, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hebrews 10.32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Last one, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I can go on, but did you catch it? 
Did you hear here that suffering, when we talk about suffering in a Christian context, it's not just about the difficult days that we will go through, but also about the difficult days that we will go through because you claim Christ. God cares about all the suffering in your life, but what is made more keenly aware in our passage this morning is the kind of suffering that comes with bearing the name of Christ. When the Lord said to take up your cross daily and to follow him, what did he mean by that? That we're called to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. What did he mean when Jesus himself said to follow me? And we know the path he took. But to take up your cross, it means to bear the humiliation. That you are, are, are opening yourself up to reproaches because you're identifying with the Christ who bore the cross in our place. That when you bear the cross of Christ, you, this is not an easy call. We are called to die to self. And I am to be a public spectacle for this name of Christ. So we will endure hardship for the cause of Christ and also in the course of following Christ. And why is that? We know that the world hates Christ, so the world hates Christians. Because... As Christ himself said in John 7, 7, he exposes, light exposes darkness. And so they hate the light. And because we partake in the light, the world will hate us. The world will hate you. So we will suffer for Christ's sake. Now, before I go on any further, when we reflect on the sufferings of Christian martyrs, and we read of the accounts of just faithful men and women who poured out their blood literally for the faith. We should read these accounts, be convicted by them, be encouraged by them. And persecution, it's, it's, it's been a big buzzword recently. And I do think we should be aware of the idea of Christian suffering and persecution. But here's what I think a danger is at times for us. The danger could be is that these sufferings can almost sound like a distant reality for us. Because we live in such a comfortable culture right now where you may not be forced to lay down your life literally for the faith. That you may not be called to die for the profession of Christ. But does that mean that we are exempt from suffering for Christ? So when we hear of these accounts of suffering and martyrdom, as we should read about them, I think the danger is it becomes a distant reality that we no longer really realize what it means for you to suffer for Christ today. That we live in a fairly comfortable world, and in comparison with our brothers and sisters in history, and even around the world today, our life is fairly comfortable. We, we have to realize that. But even as comfortable as we are here in America, praise God, it does not excuse us from the expectation that we will suffer for Christ's sake. And that even though we live here, that you are still called to suffer for Christ's sake. Now, we shouldn't make ourselves or force ourselves to be uncomfortable for the sake of Christ just so I can claim a badge of, of suffering. That's not the idea. But at the same time, if, if you've never suffered in that sense, if you have never suffered for the sake of Christ, I think it's a helpful question to ask ourselves is, do I have a clear conscience that I've never compromised in my faith? If I've never suffered 
in any degree, do I have a clear conscience that I've never compromised? Am I a secret agent of Christ? Am I undercover? Again, we're not responsible over what kinds of suffering will come our way. We know God is sovereign. But there is a legitimate examination we could do is that, do I live in such a way that even brings opposition? Because light exposes darkness. In many ways, the persecution comes in not obvious, chasing for your blood ways, but the persecution and suffering happens in just the very mundane areas of life when we seek to live for Christ's righteousness. When you're told, just too conservative. Mm, it's a Bible thumper. <sighs> Judgmental. Talk, talk about my sin? You're a sinner too. I didn't say I wasn't. You're just a little judgmental. You're just too harsh. You're confronting my sin. People may even call names and call you names. They're not even accurate, but name-calling is just a helpful way for sometimes the world just to put us in a, a little box that they can rightly identify and put on a shelf, and that's why we can expose them. Yep, they're just patriarchal. No, no, they're just, oh, you're just, you're just too, too conservative. These name calls that are not accurate, but it's just a way for them to easily, safely put us away. You may even lose friendships because of Christ. I know some of you in this very room lost relationships with family members because of Christ. That you will suffer. You may lose jobs. College students. High school students, junior high students, a daily reality when you're in the world. And what does it mean to suffer for Christ in those contexts? This is a daily reality. Because the demonic temptation will be to, for us to try to blend in just enough where I'm not going to really face opposition. Just enough so people can't really identify too hard and may, may call me too, too harsh of a name. Let me just bend, blend in just enough for safety. And when we excuse ourselves from this, when we try to avoid this type of suffering that we're called to as believers, what happens is we lose the opportunity to give an account for the hope within us. Because how can you give an account for hope within you if there's no opportunity? we look just like the world. So if we lose sight of how this passage applies to us in daily life, what happens really is this becomes a very easy sermon for me to preach. Because what I can do here is I can paint a a, a good, clear picture of this this apocalyptic picture of suffering against Christians. And we can hear that, like, yeah, that's coming eventually. Yeah, that's coming. Yeah, my grandkids are going to come for that. Yeah, it's coming for them, right? And then then it becomes easy for you to listen to, like, oh, yeah, that's what we're talking about here. Suffer for Christ. Yes, yes, that's what's coming ahead. And then we lose sight of the reality that we're called even to suffer today that it may be that you may lose something, it will cost something of you today because you stand for righteousness' sake. And I don't want us to hear this message of suffering in the context of persecution and think of it as a far reality when really the reality of all Christendom is that believers will suffer day by day, not just because we're looking for suffering, but because we stand for truth and the wickedness hates truth. 
And so we can't see this as something far away, but we're called to suffer even today. We're called to suffer for Christ. And when we suffer, this suffering is not coincidental. It's warfare. We must understand this is warfare. That when you live like Christ, you will be hated like Christ. And so back in our passage, if all you do is just humble yourselves and cast your cares, we remain passive in this warfare. We must humble ourselves, hear me, and we must cast our cares before the Lord, but that's passive. But we also must actively engage in this war. Verses 6 and 7, it narrows in for us on our disposition before God. And how are we to be before God in our suffering? We, we humble ourselves, trusting his sovereign plan, and we cast our cares before him. And now in verses 8, and 11, 8 through 11, it narrows in on our marching orders while living in a hostile world full of suffering and persecution. So verses 6 and 7, in a way, answer the question, how should we understand our sufferings so that we can endure it well? And in our passage, verses 8 through 11 answers the question, how should we engage in suffering for Christ? We must have the proper reconnaissance, so to to speak. We've got to have the recon before we go into this battle so that we can engage it well. And in a sense, if you miss this briefing, if we miss this part of the briefing of stepping into a hostile world, you'll suffer significantly as a Christian. I mean, you're still on the winning team, but you would suffer in several ways due to your ignorance on the battle and how to properly engage it. And so we need to learn not only how we to passively submit and surrender to God, but how do we actively engage this hostile world. So here are our marching orders for that. Number one, we must remain alert. Remain alert. Because we're not engaged in a physical fight, but a spiritual one. We're reminded in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which we know well, That our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That this is a spiritual fight that we're engaged in. And so therefore, we must be spiritually alert. And who is our enemy? Verse 8 says our enemy is our adversary, your adversary, the devil. Use this term adversary, it means an an opponent. This word was used in terms of an opponent in a lawsuit, one who is against you. He's called the devil, the Greek word of, of Satan from the Hebrew, meaning a slander. That you have one who is opposing you and one who wants to slander you. So we must remain alert because our battle is a spiritual battle and we have a spiritual enemy. And he is against you. Well, we must remember that Satan, he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. And he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. But demons are real. Demons are real, and they follow his same objective, to steal, kill, and destroy. So we can err on the side of, like, everything is satanic and everything is demonic. We can also err on the side of, well, let's forget about it. Let's not think about it. Let's just focus on living a Christian life. Forgetting the fact that you're in a war and you have an enemy who wants to come for you. And what does this enemy decide or desire to do? He says at the end of verse 8, he desires someone to devour. He is seeking someone to devour. And not just attack, 
but even just de- devouring someone. It's not just to taint, just to make you limb, but he desires blood. He's coming for money here, that he desires to devour. And the, the consoling thing for us as believers is we know because of God's sovereignty that none of Satan's attacks happen outside of God's decree. That even with Job, Satan wanted to take out Job, but God placed limits on his attack. That even with Peter, who's writing this epistle, probably from experience, he knew Satan was coming to devour him. But because Jesus said, I pray for you, even though he wants to sift you like wheat, I pray for you so that your faith would not fail. That in all Satan's attacks, he desires blood. He wants to devour. He wants to take God's people, but nothing happens outside of God's decree. But yet, he desires to devour. We cannot lose sight of that. We must remain alert that we have an enemy who wants blood. He wants to devour. And how does this happen? How does this devouring happen? It's not necessarily the obvious satanic attacks that we like to easily point out and talk about. But his attacks are often subtle. Just notice in, in Scripture how often we are warned against Satan and his ways and how he attacks in very subtle ways at times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul is talking about he wanted to come to Thessalonica, but he was hindered. You know why? Because Satan, he says, opposed him. In Mark chapter 4, verse 15, when it's talking about the parable of the sowers, when we spread the message of the gospel... Why don't some people respond to that message? Jesus says very clearly in Mark chapter 4, verse 15, that Satan came and stole the seed that was planted. So even though when we share the gospel, why is it that some people don't believe? One reason is Satan's opposing that work and stealing that seed. Even in the context of marriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 talks about why is it that a husband and wife should not withhold, each, hold, withhold themselves from each other physically? Why in the intimate context? Because he says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again. Why? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And one way attacking marriages in that sense. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 15, Paul said that many turned aside from following him. Why? To follow Satan, that they were led astray by his enticement. Zechariah chapter 3 tells us that he is a slanderer. He's accusing the brethren there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, when it's talking about reconciling with one another, it says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Because what would he love to do in conflict when you're with, in conflict with someone? He would love for you to hate and to assume and to cause dissension and for cause you to reproach on the name of Christ. He would love to destroy that relationship. I can go on, but First Timothy chapter three, when it's talking about the elder, the context of elders, it says, "Do not appoint new elders because they can fall under the temptation and the snare of the of the enemy." It goes on and on. But even more, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, it says that this very adversary of ours, he disguises himself as an angel of light. That he appears godly at times. Is that right? Is that, that looks good. But even our enemy seeking to deceive so he can devour. 
rather than overtly challenging or trying to intimidate, the devil's tactic is to deceive his enemies. Do you realize that your foe, your enemy, wants to deceive? That from the very beginning in Garden of Eden, it started with deception. Did God really say that he wants you to believe a lie? We must understand that we have an enemy and he wants to devour. And one of the main ways he devours is by lying. And oftentimes we believe that lie. The reason why the battle appears fleshly, we get upset with people, we get upset with things, is because it often involves people. Right? Our conflicts often do involve people. But Paul reminds us that this is a spiritual fight and Satan and his demons often use human agents to further his objective. So we see we have issues with people, with things, so to speak, but we know that this battle is far beyond a physical battle. And again, at the same time, we must be warned against the obsession to, uh, the, the, the tendency to obsess over this activity, that we can focus so much on this idea of satanic oppression that we're, we're trying to take a spiritual detector and trying to play Satan. Oh, that was Satan right there. You see how Satan tried to trick me? Oh, his demon. That's a demon of depression. Oh, that's a demon of conflict. Oh, that's a, that's a demon of poverty. Like, we can overly obsess about these things in an unhelpful way. We're not called to do that. We're not given a spiritual detector, so to speak. But we must realize we need to be alert because we do realize we have an enemy who does want to deceive us, and this enemy wants to devour. So therefore, in verse 8, at the beginning, what are we called to do in this battle? What are our marching orders? He says, be sober in spirit. And be on the alert. We are called to be sober and to be alert. To be sober in our thinking, this is associated with the idea of an athlete being self-controlled. Think of any Olympic athlete and their regiment as they're preparing year after year. That they are self-controlled in all areas of life. That he's calling us to be sober in our thinking, to be self-controlled, to be level-headed, so to speak, so that we can think rightly about everything. And not only would he be self-controlled, but we are to be alert. We are to be aware, meaning to be in a state of readiness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, Paul says that let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober in the context of just debauchery happening at night. Let us live in the day. We must be self-controlled in all manners, and we must be alert. Think of a secret, secret service agent. At any event with the president or with any um, high official, you ever notice how this, the secret service are? Of course, they got the black sunglasses, so you can't see their eyes. So tricky, right? You can't see them. Where are they looking? I don't know, right? But they're, very, they're, very, they're fixed there. But they are really alert. They're keen on attacks. They probably have insider information about some, some possible hits that could happen. They, 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 have, they have all this information, intel, and they are there, stoic and alert. I think that's a good picture. But I also think that picture falls short. Because even still there, you're, you're standing, you're alert, you're on the lookout. But I still think that's a little more passive. What I think is a more helpful picture of this, of this idea of being in a state of readiness, is... Think of a picture of a good quarterback in football. A good quarterback, right? (laughs) A good quarterback does not just want to just throw the ball to his teammate, although he's got to do that. But a good quarterback has in mind to actively score six points. His objective is, I want six more points on that board, let special teams come out and get one more or two more. 
But his point, he wants to score. He is actively engaged in a purpose to do well for the team. But a good quarterback is not only focused on scoring six points, but what does a good quarterback do? He must survey the field. A good quarterback has already looked at the defensive plays of the opposing team before coming to this game. And so he's already anticipating movements on the field of what might happen already ahead of time. He's already anticipating where his players will be. He's in touch with his wide receivers. He knows if even one of his own teammates fail to do their job, he's already anticipating maybe a rush or a sack. A good quarterback is actively pursuing to score and to do well, but he's also defensively aware of the attacks that can come to him. And that we should be alert and sober-minded, self-disciplined spiritually in our speaking, in our spiritual disciplines. We must be alert because we realize we have an enemy. And we don't know when it's going to come or how it's going to come, but trust me, it's coming. And so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to be fearful of this enemy. Instead, I am going to be self-controlled in my life. I'm going to be alert, realizing that he will come whenever he does, according to God's sovereign plan. But I must be vigilant. I must be alert and be aware. And that is what we are to be spiritually. Because if you don't realize it, the enemy does come to devour, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he comes for our homes. He comes for the churches. He comes for the community. There are many ways. And we don't want to obsess over what this looks like, but rather we want to proactively seek to live righteously, being self-controlled and alert. And so when he comes, we are prepared. Spiritually speaking, we have an adversary who wants to destroy. And so we must proactively remain self-controlled and alert. One way this happens, I think, in in keeping alert is we realize how essential prayer is in casting our cares in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our affliction. But I also want to bring to light how effective is our prayer life in even being alert and self-controlled. And one way I just want us to see this is, is how Paul instructs the churches to prepare for their own battle. Like, how does how's Paul equipping these churches to live in the world? Notice in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, after exhorting them in the gospel and the truth, now he's learning practically or teaching them practically how to live this out. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, he, he tells them, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. And then he says, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Why? He says, you're praying at the same time for us so that God will open a door for us for the word and so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned and that I make it clear that I may make it clear in a way that I ought to speak. That Paul is asking the churches, pray, why? So that I can make clear the message so that a door can be opened and so the hearts can hear it and this mystery of Christ may be made known. And you do that how? Being alert being devoted to prayer. That as Paul's going out, as we are going out living the Christian life, this is a spiritual action. And if we're honest, this, this Christian life is not an easy one to live. And we must be devoted to prayer, asking God to work in us that we may make known the mystery of the gospel no matter what context we're in, that we may live righteously, that we may live above reproach because we realize we have an enemy who wants to do the very opposite. And so prayer is so tied with this idea of being alert in Scripture. 
that we are praying because we realize there's opponents. And these opponents may look fleshly, but we realize this battle is not a fleshly battle. And we must be alert through prayer. Our enemy is subtle and he's lethal. And so our prayers should be constant and earnest. That we never let our guard down, so to speak. Or how did Jesus say it? In Matthew 26, 41, he, he told his disciples to keep watching and what? And keep praying. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. That he is warning them to watch and to pray. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we pray, casting our cares, but also praying so that we are on the alert and we're walking in the spirit. That we are to be sober, we are to be aware, we are to be alert, but even more, our second marching order is to resist him. We are to resist your adversary. Resist your adversary. Due to improper emphases in in recent Christian culture, the way we tend to interpret what it means to resist the devil It's often interpreted as you need to be actively against your adversary. You need to fight him toe-to-toe. Satan, I bind you. I come against you. And and it ends up with these these just awkward prayers and these unbiblical prayers against an enemy because we're told, let's resist him. So let's go toe-to-toe with him. And we lose sight of really what we're called to do. This does not mean that we are to interact with him by seeking to have a conversation with the enemy. I mean, historically speaking, that's never gone well. Talk to Eve. But yet we're still called to resist him. So what does that mean? To resist him means to oppose. You you, you oppose him, to be at pose at odds with someone. And you can't resist. He says he's roaring around like what? A hungry lion. He's seeking someone to, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so you oppose him. You resist him. Now you can't, in your own self, go against a roaring lion, would you? Like, would you stand in front of a roaring lion? I wouldn't. But if I was standing on top of a military tank, would you resist this lion? I I think I would. You know why? It's not because you're, you're suddenly stronger, but it's because of where you're standing. And so we're called to resist the devil. We're called to oppose him. But what does that look like? How are we called to resist him? What does this opposition looks like, look like? Well, because he, he works in deceit, that he is the lie, he's a lie, he's the father of lies, you oppose him with truth. That's why he says after this, resist him, what? Firm in your faith. You resist him with truth. We draw from our faith and stand on the truth of our faith. That this warfare is a battle for truth. That how often is our struggle a a struggle to believe what God said? Like our struggle and our toil is a battle to believe what is true. That we are resisting falsehood. And so because we're resisting falsehood, you're not resisting using your own fleshly means. You're resisting using God's means. And so you resist the devil using firm in your faith. Ephesians 6.13, in the context of this warfare we talked about earlier, he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. 
So resist him standing firm in the faith. He says in that very same context, what do you do when fiery arrows come for you? What do you hold up? The shield of of faith. When truth is attacked, what do you do but stand on truth? And what he's not saying here is, is you need to find your strength to believe hard enough. Like, that's not what he's saying in resisting, to believe hard enough so that you can stand. But rather he's saying, in the sphere of your faith, you stand there. You stand on God's promises. It's as if you are standing on a tank, then yes, you can oppose this roaring lion because your strength is not in your intellectual ability to rule out or talk about this temptation or talk about this warfare. Your your confidence is not in your own ability, but it's what you're standing on. And so he says, oppose him, resist him, and you resist him with truth. That when truth is attacked, we stand on his promises. This is the context of opposition. That when you live for Christ, when you live obediently, there will be plenty of opportunities that challenge that obedience to this Christ. That when you seek to speak rightly of Christ, to to tell of Christ, to share the gospel of Christ, to live like Christ, when you seek to proactively work and walk in obedience of this Christ, there will be opposition. Now, whether this opposition is coming just because of your own sinful flesh that has been tainted by the sinful world because of the fall that came from the mouth of Satan, or if it's coming from the work of adversaries themselves, we don't know. Our job is not to identify the source of opposition, but we are to be aware as believers, to be alert and to realize there is a foe, and so therefore we will have opposition. And whether it's coming from your flesh or whether it's coming from your enemy, what are you to do but to stand firm on God's promises? And that's what we do, because time and time again, when we attempted to sin, when we're tempted to deny Christ, when we're tempted to compromise, when we're tempted to soften the truth just so we don't offend them too hard, when we're tempted in these very subtle ways, we're falling to deceit. And what do we do but stand firm in truth? If you go back to chapter or James chapter 4, he parallels these very truths that Peter is talking about, the ones we've been over the past couple weeks. And he says in chapter 4, verse 7, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. That we are to resist the devil. And there are times when resisting involves fleeing from temptation. That to resist him is not necessarily speaking of a physical activity of running away, but you're standing firm in the faith. And standing firm in the faith at times means you flee temptation, as Joseph did from the hand of Potiphar's wife. So although we stand firm, we stand firm on truth, firm in the faith. And resisting him, we realize, is that we resist him. We go to truth. We go to war with error. Because Satan seeks to deceive us, to allow us to listen to a lie, we must stand firm in truth. And how does this look like in daily life? 
Because I think we can hear this and understand what this looks like in the spiritual context of a battle. But think about the daily warfare that you're engaged in. What about the warfare of a mother at home with her kids who's seeking to administer the gospel to her children? Seeking to discipline. As a father, you come home from work. Either and you go to work. Whatever context you're in, what subtle ways do we cave in to deceit because we allow ourselves to believe a lie? That we think it's just a hard day, just a difficult day, and we give in to sin, we give in to anger, we give in to wrath, we give in to lust, we give in to greed, we give in to all amounts of sin that seeks to destroy us because we're not alert. And we give in to all of this because we realize we don't have an enemy and we're not opposing truth or we're not opposing error. That instead of of just relenting ourselves and, and instead of walking in a way that we should to honor God, we give in to deceit time and time again. And so even though we're called to stand for truth, we can't forget in the fact in this battle here is that we stand for truth by being immersed in truth and walking in truth and trusting in truth and allowing God's truth to work in us so that we can walk in a way that pleases him. That we must be alert and aware of this enemy, but we oppose him, we resist him with truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, when it's Paul speaking of spiritual warfare in the context of apologetics, he says that though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. But what does Paul say about our weapons that we use? He says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking captive every thought to obedience of Christ. That our war, our weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. It's not according to human reason. But we use the weapons of God. We use truth to battle. And so even as we do stand for Christ, when we do call out sin, as we said, we we expose the deeds of darkness, we're doing so by the means of God. We use the word of God to exhort the people of God, and even in this world that God has made, we stand on this truth and we proclaim it, not trusting in our ability to, to reason out sin or that nature, but rather we're standing on truth. So we cast down satanic ideologies with truth. We must move on. The third marching order is not only just to to remain alert and to resist our adversary, but third, to remember your community. Remember your community. We must remember that we are not suffering alone. He says in verse 9, again, resist him, firm in your faith, but what? Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, if you came up to me and you told me that you were going through a difficult time, that you were having a difficult time at work because they, they, you stood for righteousness and you got made fun of or you got not even necessarily demoted, but now you're, you're placed in this, this different lateral position. Or perhaps you got opposition from neighbors, from family members. If you told me you're going through a hard time, and as the empathetic pastor that I am, and I said, you know, other people are going through a hard time too. What would you do? And so, oh, you're going through a hard time? You're not the only one. Yep, yep, 200 other people in this congregation? Yep, they're going through a hard time as well. How would you receive that encouragement? I'm guessing not well. 
But you see here, he, he sort of encouraged them in the same way, but we must understand it in the right context. Because he says here, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren. This, this term, your brethren, is not just, just brothers that's used generally in, in Scripture, which can refer to brothers and sisters in Christ, or just brothers. But he uses a special term of this brethren term that, that literally means a group of fellow believers. And it emphasizes the idea of community. And so what he's saying here, the same experiences, in other words, the same kinds of suffering here, he's emphasizing the idea of identity that you have with other fellow believers. That there is a community of other believers who are also suffering, and not just suffering locally, but suffering, he says, in the world. And so he uses this as a true, genuine encouragement to remind you that when you do suffer for Christ's sake, no matter how small, no matter how great the suffering is, that you are suffering in company with other believers, with other sisters, other brothers, that you're not alone. He is pointing out your identity in your suffering that you are wearing a badge of honor because those who suffer in this way, wearing the badge of Christ, ought to be humbled because they're suffering for this Christ whom they don't deserve. And so he's reminding them that you are suffering in this, but stand firm in your faith on the promises, knowing that you're not alone. That stand firm that this comes with the territory. That when you wear that badge of Christ, so to speak, it comes with that. And as Paul reminds us in Philippians 1, you've been gifted salvation, but you've also been gifted to suffer for him. That he's telling him here, you are identifying with Christ in a special way, and you are suffering in the fellowship of his sufferings. And so he's reminding them that they are a part of a community. And not only that, he's saying that these these sufferings are being accomplished in your brethren around the world. It's being accomplished that God is working by his own sovereign means to accomplish suffering in his people. Which is strange when you think about it this way. That God is accomplishing something in us. Now, in order for God to accomplish something, there must be a mission. That God is working to perfect, to strengthen, to encourage, to glorify. That God is working with specific intention, and he does it through suffering. And so when he uses you to suffer for his sake, that it is a badge of honor that we receive. And we realize, I'm not the only one suffering. It's not, woe is me, but I realize, whoa, I am privileged to suffer with God's people. So when we stand for truth... When you bear reproaches because of Christ, because of truth, when you stand in the face of error, when you stand in the face of deceit, when you stand on God's promises, you realize I'm not standing alone. That you are in a community. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, he's saying, don't be surprised when you're going through this fire ordeal, when it, when it feels hot, like when, you're in, when you're in the oven, when it feels like you're in the furnace, believer, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. He says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with, ex- with exaltation. This comes with the territory. 
that this suffering, referring heavily to persecution, is being accomplished in all the Christian community worldwide. And during this time of writing, it's been noted that the believers, they were social outcasts in the world. Because they wouldn't participate in activities devoted to the foreign deities that they worshipped, that believers were considered outcasts. You don't do that ritual, or you don't subscribe to this. Oh, you don't believe that love is love. You don't believe we all can coexist. Oh, you think it's wrong for someone to to, to, this, to do this. You think it's wrong for a woman to have dominion over her own body. You think it's it's wrong to say that oh we should square out these races so it's more equity in the end. Like you think that's wrong? Well, you're saying that there's only one way to be justified before God. That believers, we're, we're not in a different context here. That believers from the first century were considered outcasts because they didn't subscribe to the dominating culture of ignorance. That believers have been outcasts from century to century. And we continue to be outcasts until the very end. That this is not strange to us. It's not this like a special time for us and now we got to gear up. No, that's been from day one. But we walk in this, standing truth, standing in the truth of God's word. One person noted this way that Christians were considered odious in the eyes of their neighbors. And we must be ready for that. I think if we're not ready, if we are not prepared, if we do not understand just the subtle ways of this, then we do just look bland. You do look like the world. Then what does it mean to look like a Christian if we don't understand that we do have a genuine adversary? What does it mean if we don't understand that there will be opposition to the very things that we cling, that cling, that we cling to? Like, do we understand this truth? Are we prepared to engage in this battle and engage in it the right way by not only humbling ourselves before God in our affliction, but also engaging error with truth? That the world needs truth. Because we needed truth, that we were on the way to hell at one time, that we didn't realize that God's wrath was upon us for our sins. And then when someone in God's grace shared with us that Christ, who lived the perfect life in your place, died and bore the wrath of God and rose again, and he did this in love, and that if you turn to this Christ, you can be saved. But when we neglect, when we're scared to share that powerful truth, we are succumbing to deceit. That we're believing this person is stronger than me. He's stronger than God. That we lose sight of these truths, we fail to engage in warfare the right way. That we're not alone. We have an adversary, but we engage him biblically with truth. God's truth. This is one reason why the church fellowship is such a sweet fellowship, amen? If, if we live this out, if we're realizing that, yes, we, we may be treated horrendously by others outside, but when I come here to my believers and I see other believers who are suffering with me, we may come in limping a little bit. We may come in scraped up, but you know what? I got my brother next to me. We're singing and we're eyes are fixed on Christ, we're turning our eyes upon Jesus. And I'm not the only one singing this. That there are other people who believe this. 
that I'm coming to community group, scarred up from the world, in the home, in the workplace, in the neighborhood. There are other people who are suffering with me, but I am being reminded and being held up by other brothers and sisters who are clinging to the same truth that God has saved them in, and we are holding ourselves, holding ourselves accountable and praying, being alert in this warfare, so that when we go out, I pray that my sister goes back home and loves her husband in a way that God has commanded her to. I pray, Lord, that as he goes to work, that he would not be bold to share the gospel with this coworker who shared a suffering event in his life. I'm praying, Lord, keep him alert to see people who need to hear the message of the gospel. So even when they push it back in his face, he walks away boldly because he realized I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God, that their blood is not on my hands. But I walked as a pillar of truth in whatever context God has placed you. And so if we engage in this world in the way God has called us to engage, we will not only submit to whatever he has before us, but as a light walking in darkness, he will use you to engage error with truth. And when that truth is heralded, his will is proclaimed, and we just trust him with the rest. And so we realize no matter what God has for us, our goal, our objective is to walk in a manner worthy. And we're walking so in community that we have one another. The comforting reality is that it's not just you and you're not alone, but we realize others are suffering and have suffered just like us. The fourth one we have to to move on is, is to be reminded of God's victorious plan. We must be reminded of God's victorious plan as you engage in the battle. That as you suffer for Christ, as you seek to live a righteous life according to his word, as you seek to, to, to oppose error, you must be reminded of God's victorious plan. And that plan involves even purposes in you personally. That we know God is going to exalt himself how he sees fit, but we must remember that God's victorious plan has you in mind. And why is that? Because this passage ends in a benediction that, that just so beautifully rounds out this message. So far, just in these four verses here, there's kind of three relationships that we understand here. Our relationship with our enemy, our relationship amongst other believers, and now we're seeing here this relationship that God has with us and he's working within us. And in this plan here, notice what God is doing. Because what we should notice then in the context and we speak about suffering, is how small of a role suffering has in the Christian's life. I want you to think about that. That suffering is such a small role in the Christian's life if you have it in perspective. He says in verse verse 10, he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish you. Now, it's great translation, but in, in the Greek here, the, the only reason why I'm pointing this out is the word order that is in the Greek emphasizes, has a, different, has a different emphasis for us. Because here in our English translations, which reads more smoothly, so it should read this way in our English, it, it kind of emphasizes the wrong point. Because it says, after you've suffered a little while. But literally, the Greek order, if you were to read it literally, it says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. 
after suffering a little while, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Did you hear that? That he, he begins it here, this verse, with the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. After you suffered just a little while, he himself will strengthen and confirm, perfect, and establish you. That the emphasis here is just, just a little while. That you will suffer just a little while. As Brother Nate just read in this passage, 2 Corinthians 4, that this is a light, momentary affliction. He says, that the, but the God of all grace, the God who will supply you with all grace, not only the grace to save you, but the grace to sustain you even in your trials, this God of all grace, magnificent grace, sufficient grace, this same God, after you've just suffered just a little bit, then he will do the work to perfect, to confirm, to strengthen, to establish you. That we must see and keep our suffering in perspective. That as we suffer for Christ's name, it's such a small role in our life and perspective. That we are looking forward to this eternal work that he's doing. And what will he do? He uses four verbs that are in the future to indicate this expressed desire of what God will certainly do in you, in your suffering. That what will God do in your suffering? What will he do in you? He says... In verse 10, that he will himself, emphasis, that he will do this, perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish. That to perfect someone is to make completely adequate or sufficient for something. It has the idea of restoring something. So even if you've fallen short in while suffering, maybe you, like Peter, denied Christ and you wept. Then he says this idea of perfecting is the idea of restoring, that he will make you even adequate in that. That one person said it this way, that God will restore or repair whatever is damaged. And if we have been defeated in the past, this does not mean that our future capacity to face future conflicts will be impaired. Why? Because he's going to perfect you. He's going to mature you. Then he says he's going to confirm you, which in a sense is to make someone stronger, to make you more firm and unchanging in attitude and your belief. That he is going to strengthen you. He is going to make you more firm. And he says in the third verb that he will strengthen you, which is the idea to make you more able. It's very similar to the the term he used already with confirm. They're very similar in meaning, but really to encourage us of God's design to make you more able to endure certain circumstances. That God is working in you so you are stronger, able to bear these circumstances even more. And he says finally that he's going to establish, which is to cause to be steadfast, same word is used in Matthew 7, 25 of the house that is built on the rock, that is established on the rock. So what is God doing in our suffering? What is he doing as you wear this badge of Christ that comes with suffering? He is going to make you stronger so that you can endure it, so you can even endure greater depths of it, that you can be established so you won't be moved. So even if you do fall short, he is still working in your weaknesses to confirm, to strengthen you, to establish you. That God himself is doing this. So when you see this in the context, this suffering is so small. But what is he doing in us is he is strengthening us. And if this verse was not here, believer, you should feel hopeless. You you would, you should walk out with despair. But he himself is doing this. Do you comfort your soul with this truth? Are you reminded in your suffering that God is perfecting, confirming, strengthening, establishing you. Are you comforted with that? The Lord has good plans 
to establish you so that you are a fortified pillar. You're built on the promises of Christ so that you're equipped by the Spirit of Christ to suffer for the glory of Christ so that you will reign with Christ. And he ends it with this beautiful, beautiful doxology in verse 11. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That to God alone, the dominion, the authority, the power, that this is our God, that he will have the final word. So what else will we stand upon? If it is this God with this promise, then we are to be active, engaging in the spiritual fight, being alert, resisting our adversary, remembering our community, being reminded of God's work in us, his victorious plan, that we will stand firm, knowing that no matter what God brings upon our way, his desire for you is to confirm, to perfect, to mature you, to establish you, so that you will not be moved, that he is working for his glory. If we are unaware of this, then we will walk out of these doors into this world, ignorant of a foe, succumbing to temptation, succumbing to deceit in every way. But believer, I pray that we would realize who you are and what you've been equipped to be and equipped to bear for his name's sake. That we are in a spiritual warfare, so we must remain alert at all times, resisting this enemy, remembering our community, and remembering God's victorious plan in you. Let's pray. Father, we can't do this apart from your spirit and your work in us. And we realize, Lord, that we are called to actively live this out in a way that glorifies you. As we see our insufficiencies, as we see our weaknesses, may you work in us and make us, God, able to bear and to bear for Christ's sake. It's his name we pray. Amen.